Toddcast, NAM 2014 Extra Edition, with Indy Leclerc. Hello, and welcome to the Toddcast. I'm Indy, and instead of the usual July Extra episode, we're bringing to you a special NAM 2014 episode, featuring interviews from the attendees of the National Astronomy Meeting 2014 in Portsmouth. NAM was on from the 23rd to the 26th of June, and was host to astronomers from every field imaginable, covering everything from our own relatively close sun to the latest cosmological theories. We talked to Gerhard Schwein, retiring mission director for ESA's incredible Rosetta mission, Professor Rob Fender from Oxford University about extreme astrophysical events in the radio, Professor Richard Bauer from Durham, talks to us about an interesting project at the intersection of history and cosmology, and PhD student Ali Suleiman from Imperial College tells us about his research on Saturn's magnetosphere. Finally, we managed to catch conference organiser Professor Bob Nicol for his views on the whole thing. Enjoy! I'm at NAM 2014 in Portsmouth, and I have with me um, Gerhard Schwimm from uh, ESA. Hi. So you've just given a, a really fascinating talk about the uh, the Rosetta mission and the Rosetta spacecraft. Um, first of all, could you just give us a quick overview of, of what that mission is and, and what it's trying to do? Rosetta is a mission to rendezvous with the comet. That means we will soon get an orbit around the comet, and we want to study the comet in full detail, because this will be the first mission that really stays with the comet for a long time. It's not a fast flyby. It really stays there. It's in rendezvous. We can study great detail the surface of the comet we can study the composition of the comet the environment of the comet when the activity develops when it's far from far away from the sun through perihelion and then to the outer or far distance from the sun and this will be really fascinating after the flybys we had the first of time to really stay with the comet and see how everything works Wow, that's 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 really interesting, and and what makes it even more special is that so there's two parts to it. Basically, there's the the spacecraft, the Rosetta spacecraft, and you're also going to try and land a module onto the comet itself. So, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that's uh, correct. That was uh, when we designed the mission from the agency. We wanted to have a, a rendezvous mission with an orbiter, but we always had the idea that you could also have a lander, and uh, we got a consortium from uh, DLR and CNES and RC in the end with a lot of other uh, participants from all over Europe uh, that provided the lender to the to ESA. So the lender is uh, not under the management of ESA, but it was provided like an instrument to ESA. And uh, it is really uh, a challenging uh, project to have a small lander that's carried to a comet and that should land on a comet surface. And uh, as I explained in the talk, what is really so fascinating, or perhaps also where you really have to be very concerned, we don't know the comet yet. You know, we, we have only from this comet, we have ground-based observations. Sure. And it's the first time that somebody gets close to Chiriyum of Garasimenko, our target. Okay. But so far, the resolution we get, it's basically a pixel. And <laughs> on this comet surface, you want to put down a lander of a size of... Uh, it's a one cubic meter object, so to say, but with the legs, it's two meters. So this will be the challenge. As soon as we get close to the comet, which will happen in a couple of weeks, so end of July, we get close that we can really see how does the surface look like, uh, what are the properties of the comet. And then within a couple of weeks, we have to decide 
where to land on the nucleus and implement everything with flight dynamics. So this will this will be really a big challenge and uh, it's fascinating. But, uh, you know, science you only get when you really try your best and that you really try something that never has, nobody has done before. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a big exercise in adaptability, I guess, because you don't really know what it looks like. Talking a bit about the, the history of, of the Rosetta mission, so, well, first of all, when was it launched and and how long has it taken you to, to get to where the comet is and also where is the comet actually situated? Yeah, no, it was launched in uh, on the 2nd of March 2004, more than 10 years ago, and uh, it takes such a long time to get a comet. If you want to go in a rendezvous, you have to synchronize your orbit with the orbit of the comet. Now, the, the comet is on a fairly elliptic orbit. It's, okay, it's a, a Jupiter family comet. That means the comet has basically its aphelion, the point farthest away from the sun, close to Jupiter's orbit, and then it comes, uh, this comet now, to 1.2 AU for its perihelion. But uh, that means you need a lot of energy to get there. And we don't have a launcher that can do it directly. You can't just launch it. So if you do it the way we do it with a ballistic mission, uh, you have to go far out. And the only way to do it, to compensate for the fuel you don't have or for the power you don't have with your launcher, is to do gravity assists. That means you use the Earth to gain so the orbital energy. And that we had to do now... Uh, Jerome of Karasimenko was also very challenging in this one. So we had actually three flybys at the Earth and we had one flyby at Mars to really target the spacecraft really optimally at uh, Earth. So, and that adds to your flight time. So because one Earth flyby is basically, you can say, if, if you go, don't go far out, it's one year till you get back. But as you want to go far away, so we were basically going through the asteroid belt and uh, therefore these orbits also take a little bit longer and that adds to your flight time. But it saves you a lot of money, a lot of fuel, but also a lot of money. Because if you if you would have launched this uh, extra fuel that was needed, it would have been uh, at least six, I think, six or eight tons more. Wow. So it's a lot. Yeah. So the spacecraft was just over three tons when we launched it, and we don't have a launcher for get six tons to something. Yeah. So what, what's the the schedule now? So the Rosetta is getting is getting close to the comet. Uh, once you get there. What happens and, and when does the lander come into play? Yeah. What happens right now, we, we are just at the end of a sequence of uh, what we call deep space maneuvers that really get the, the spacecraft close to the comet. Right now we are 150,000 kilometers away and we have a, s- a sequence of smaller maneuvers. So by the end of July, one can say we're getting uh, 3,000 kilometers away, something like very close and then we're getting uh, gradually closer and also the relative velocity between the comet and the spacecraft gets much smaller. Mm-hmm. And uh, so early July, you can uh, we can already dream off to get the first higher resolution images so that the comet is not only one pixel, <laughs> but we get some kind of resolution. Sure. And then early August, we should uh, get to about a resolution of 10 to uh, 10 meters, put it like this. Uh, so this sequence uh, will go on, so we get closer and closer to the nucleus. And then early uh, August, uh, the 7th of August, we will go in an orbit. I say that in quotation marks because it's not really orbit, but it's some kind of pseudo-orbit. We fly in front of the comet, but we have basically we have the same relative velocity. And uh, so the, the motion of the spacecraft in front of the comet is very, very slow. Uh-huh. So because, you know, a lot of people have... If you have an Earth-orbiting spacecraft, it's 90 minutes to get around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, And for the comets, that's a couple of days. 
it's very, very slow. So it's like a pedestrian yeah, walking. And this is basically what, <laughs> what we are doing. That's and right. that gives us uh, a lot of time to map the comet. That means with the cameras we can uh, map the comet. But also we have time for the mass spectrometers. They have a lot of time to integrate the measurements. And that should give us a lot of great results. Brilliant. And um, so... What, are the, what is the lander going to do? I think you mentioned it has a drill, so it's going to take some samples yeah. of the surface itself. Yeah. Okay, this, uh, what we do, most of the stuff, it's to learn about the comet, but it's also to characterize the comet, that we know it in great detail, and everything we know, that we can also prepare the landing. Because what we want to do is to, to deploy the lander mid of November. And we have to do it so soon, even if we have a very short time to learn everything about the nucleus, uh, because the activity starts to increase and you want to deploy the lander in a, at a time when the activity is still fairly moderate or low because then you don't have disturbances on the spacecraft that disturbs a little bit the orbit and we have to be very precise and also when the lander falls down. So the lander will be deployed 11 of November, that's the nominal date. It will go down onto the surface more or less passively, sit there and then starts measurements. So we have cameras, a number of cameras, they will give us a panoramic view and then look where the best side is. We can rotate the lander body okay. and then go to the best side where we can drill into the nuclear surface and take samples from the subsurface, so up to 20 centimeters, 30 centimeters below. These samples are taken out and then fed into some rotating ovens. So we have an oven and uh, we can, so to say, heat up the samples. And then when you heat up, you then with a mass spectrometer you just measure what is coming out at a certain temperature so this is a normal uh, technology and the technique but you do it on a, <laughs> on a comet yeah, nucleus to, yeah and uh, so there is a, a some kind of uh, there's a gas chromatographic uh, analyzer behind it and a mass spectrometer and these two together will give us then and together with the temperature information, the information also on the composition of the material. And this is, will be very challenging, and one of the instruments is coming from the Open University, the Ptolemy. They will look at the isotopic composition of the light elements. And this is, it's a fascinating instrument, and there's a lot of technology into it. And uh, let's see if, if they get, uh, give us some measurements that will be really brilliant. Uh, that would be that would be absolutely amazing. I mean, landing a, something on it on a, on a comet. I mean, people probably find that absolutely incredible. Um, just very quickly to wrap up, because I think uh, another session is starting. But um, what's going to happen sort of after the the, the comet passes its uh, perihelion, and then uh, and, and and eventually, I guess the Rosetta itself will run out of fuel or whatever. So, so what are the plans for the uh, for the whole thing after that? Okay, we will stay after the lander is deployed for more than a year with the comet, do all the measurements, go through perihelion, and then with the orbit out again away from the sun. Uh, the nominal mission will end end of 2015, uh, but we already know that we have, if everything now goes uh, all right, we have additional fuel on board, so we could stay with the comet nucleus again to a distance from the sun at 4 AU when we had to go in hibernation again because we have not enough uh, power with our huge solar arrays. So there are a few options what we can do. One option is that we just let the spacecraft drift and do measurement till it dies, and then it will more or less stay at the orbit of the comet. The other option is what our plasma physics colleague want to do, that we do really excursions away from the nucleus, which costs some fuel because you want to do it fast and not just drift slowly away. And the third one, which I 
see would see it as the best is at the end of the mission just put this, the orbiter onto the surface and uh, have, so to say, have it as a monument flying around <laughs> with the com- because it will stay close to the comet orbit for more or less forever. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it will not. It, it might drift slowly away, but I think that would be a wonderful end of the mission if the fuel, most of the fuel, is yeah. used up. Land it softly onto the nucleus and then let them go together. A beautiful, uh, fitting end to a, to a really amazing project. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Gerhard. Thank you. And all the best. I'm at the Portsmouth Guildhall with Professor Rob Fender from Oxford University. Hi, Rob. Hi, good morning. So you've just given a talk about, uh, well, extreme astrophysics, really, using, using radio. So could you, first of all, just give us a quick overview of, um, of what you're interested in in, uh, in terms of these uh, extreme objects? Yeah, sure. So um, what we've realized over the last couple of decades is that anything which is explosive or does any kind of kinetic feedback uh, in astrophysics, which is sort of supernovae, relativistic jets from black holes, probably other exotic phenomena that we've yet to discover, ends up producing radio emission. And that's because every time you eject something into the local medium, you end up uh, accelerating particles, you end up compressing magnetic fields, and you get synchrotron radiation. So we found, actually, that although you would naively think that perhaps ultraviolet X-ray or gamma rays were the best traces of the most extreme phenomena in the universe, and they are very good, in fact, radio turns out to be a very, very good tracer of these events as well. So there's a lot of potential, in fact, for, for multi-wavelength observations and, and sort of radio follow-ups of, uh, of transient events that, are, that have been seen in, in other um, wavelengths. For example, things like SWIFT. So um, what, what kind of systems are in place at the moment to detect sort of transient objects with radio? Yeah, so um, SWIFT's a very good example. So SWIFT primarily is detecting gamma-ray bursts at large distances, which are, of course, very exciting phenomena, but it's also detecting uh, other things which produce hard X-ray or gamma-ray bursts. So, in fact, for the first time about a year and a half ago, we, uh, we managed to roboticize as it were, a radio telescope. So we took the AMI radio telescope uh, over in Cambridge, which is a traditional dish-based array operating at 15 gigahertz, and we implemented a system um, uh, which currently operates via the University of Southampton, whereby swift alerts, which come from the spacecraft upon detection of a gamma-ray burst or similar, down to the ground and are released by the Goddard Space Flight Center of the community on timescales of about 30 seconds. We immediately relay those as, an inst- as a direct instruction to the, uh, the AMI radio telescope array, which then begins slewing to our target. So, so AMI would typically, for example, be observing CMB or a Planck cluster, something like this. An alert comes in from SWIFT. We automatically, with no human intervention, override the telescope, swing round uh, and observe uh, in the radio band. Um, and apart from... Well, so using, using SWIFT, you managed to, to find a, a radio follow-up, I believe, of a superflare in, uh, in, in an M-type star. Could you maybe say a bit about that? Yeah, so the project was mainly set up, in fact, to, to look for early-time radio emission from gamma-ray bursts. We have been successful in doing that, I should say. But, um, but in fact, uh, just a, a couple of months ago, SWIFT triggered on a gamma-ray flare from a nearby system, which turns out to be very interesting. So it looks like it's a very young i.e. tens of millions of years, a binary system with two very active M dwarf stars. And these are the kind of stars which are going to have large, probably rapid rotation, large magnetic fields, large magnetic reconnection event flares. So one of these, uh, these events from a system only nine parsecs away triggered SWIFT. We got onto it very rapidly uh, with Amy, and over the course of the following few days, we actually found a bright radio event from this superflare, which is the first time such a, a radio flare has been seen from such an event. So this was an entirely serendipitous discovery which just came from this SWIFT follow-up program. 
Um, another unique kind of radio event that, that is, is quite interesting to see is, uh, is Fast Radio Bursts, which uh, so have been seen a couple of times now, and, and you're hoping to confirm them. And one of the themes of your talk as well was what the future is really for transient radio surveys. So um, obviously the SKA is coming up, so that's a big part of it. So could you talk a bit about the new telescopes coming up and, and, and the main radio things that they're trying to see? Yeah, so fast radio bursts are extremely exciting events. These were these were first reported by Lorimer et al. back in 2006, and there was there were there were a few years of uh, of scepticism, but recent results, most notably in a paper, um, in fact, from Manchester by Thornton et al., um, have really confirmed that these things are astrophysical events. And our best interpretation of the data, although we don't have observations of these events at any other wavelengths, is that they really are occurring at cosmological distances. Um, to date, somewhere, something like 15 of these events have been found, and they're probing an interesting range uh, of distances and parameter space. But I think the most exciting thing about these events is that we simply don't know what they are. So candidates, for example, are merging neutron stars, which may in the future turn out to be uh, gravitational wave sources. On to the rates. Um, so, you know, on a timescale of about 10 years, about 10 or 15 of these things have been found. It is pretty clear in estimating the rates for the square kilometer array which will of course be you know orders of magnitude more sensitivity and collecting area than current telescopes that we should be detecting these things at rates of about one per day so uh you know if we are allowed to search all of the square kilometer array data streams all of the time for these events then we should have thousands of these events rather than 10 on a time scale of about 10 years from now and uh, so that it's in the works to automate all of these things with the SK because you wouldn't be able to, to do it with just a, a bunch of scientists trying to look through all the data. You'd take ages to find any sort of transient events. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the biggest problems. I mean, you, you take... For, for the most interesting transient events, these probably happen on fairly short timescales. To look through the vast quantities of data which will be coming out of the telescope on seconds timescales is, is an enormous endeavour. It's hard enough to compute, to, to do the actual uh, the analysis on the computers, but that is a tractable problem. But then to get a human being looking at all the images to find the transients is impossible. So our goal would be that as the data comes off the telescope in close to real time, by which I mean tens of seconds, the data are searched transients, um, some preliminary analysis may be done, and if we're confident enough about the event, then we will just send, a, a, send out a worldwide alert to everybody. And this is, this is a similar model to what the LSST, for example, is proposing for optical transients. There's no way that the core team can, can find all these things by eyeball, and there's no way that the core team can handle all the scientific follow-up. So the, the, clearly the way to maximise the science is just to find these things as quickly as possible and to put them out there as quickly as possible. And the, the other point which is relevant is that although the radio mission is very exciting, should have uh, high rates of events and tells you certain things about it, it really doesn't tell you that much, and it really is important to get, for example, rapid optical photometry and maybe spectroscopy of these events. That really will maximise the science that you get. Um, what, one other point that was that was raised, I think, during the question session was um, if, if you're having automatic detection of these events, there is a risk that, given that you stick to what you know, you will, will miss some of the more interesting things. So, um, is there a plan to work? Or how would you work around that? It's a very good. It's a very good point. So, um, we are currently developing a software package together with a computer scientist at the University of Southampton, whereby it should be possible to insert into a scheduling piece of code. A grid, which in some sense encapsulates your, your sci the scientific returns you would get from, from a certain, uh, certain type of follow-up. There is no single 
optimal follow-up which will make everyone happy. So the follow-up which is relevant, for example, to cosmological bursts will not be the same as that which is relevant to, uh, for example, nearby binaries or flare stars. Um, but it, it, it is a very good point, and it's very true that we will always be biased towards what we know. And even if we try and think about the regions of parameter space we haven't explored, we will be biased, we will get it wrong. So at the moment, I think our best hope and the 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 idea we're advancing is that something like 20% of all our follow-up time, we just follow up a randomly cho- we just follow up randomly chosen events. So if you like, every time an event comes in, we roll a dice. If it's a six, then we'll just follow up regardless of what our classification schemes uh, um, suggest it might be. So a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck then maybe to we'll go into finding uh, new and interesting objects. But it seems like the future is pretty bright for, for transient uh, uh, science in, in the radio and, and in other wavelengths, really. Yeah, no, that's right. So I, I think the future is bright. I think, you know, we, we know that there's a lot of interesting stuff we'll find. But, of course, the most interesting thing would be to find something completely new. So that's, that's, that's indeed where the luck comes in. And, you know, fingers crossed we will be, uh, we'll be making some big discoveries. Thank you. Great. Thanks for talking to us, Rob. I'm here at NAM 2014 in Portsmouth with Dr. Richard Bauer from the University of Durham. Rich has been involved in a really interesting study of a historical document, actually, from a kind of scientific point of view. So, well, I'll let Richard do the talking, and maybe you can explain what you've been doing with your team. I will. So uh, this is a a project called The Ordered Universe. It's a, a much larger project than the one document I talked about. It's going back and looking at various historical scientific works that were written by Robert Grosstest. And I should say that it's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. So what we've been looking at is is Robert Grosstest has sort of three phases to his life. So at various times, he's been very famous because the latter part of his life, he was campaigning for the reform of the church. The previous to that, he was a lecturer in theology. And at the beginning of, of his life, he was in some way a lecturer in natural philosophy. So today we call natural philosophy physics, but in uh, 1225 it was kind of the media studies subject of the day, and it was seen very much as a a kind of a subject you would um, study on the side before becoming a proper lecturer in a serious thing like medicine or theology. And so during that time he seems to have lectured this, uh, he presented and he won, he summarizes this in various documents. So there are documents on colors, on rainbows, and the one we've been looking at is on light. And although the document is titled On Light, it's really about the origin of the universe. And what's fascinating in this document is he, the way he thinks is just so much like the way a modern cosmologist would think. So he starts by, by thinking about the, the laws of physics around him and seeing, coming up with a theory to explain why the table has a solid structure despite being made of point-like atoms. And he concludes that it's the interaction of the atoms and the light that give the table its form. Now, don't get too scared. He doesn't invent uh, quantum mechanics, but but he it's his way of understanding the Aristotelian philosophy. But what's amazing is he then goes on and takes that idea and sees tries to use it to understand the creation of the universe. 
So he starts the universe off at a point as a, a an instantaneous flash of light that spreads out. But because of his assumption that there's this interaction of light and matter, as the light expands, it has to drag matter with it. So the universe initially starts out by expanding. And that's uncannily like the Big Bang, but of course the physics behind it is is somewhat different. Um, so the interesting part that we focused on is what happens next, because you begin reading the text and it seems very obscure what, what happens subsequently. But we think we now understand what it, what it is meaning. And what the, the, the fundamental idea is that there's a minimum density but for light and matter. And once the universe reaches this minimum density, it kind of crystallizes and becomes the outer celestial sphere. So um, that was an idea that comes from Aristotle and the Arabic astronomers, Averroes. So he's really trying to explain how their view of the universe came into creation. And he has this idea that the initial outer sphere then radiates a different sort of light coming in from the outside towards the center of the, the universe. And as that light comes in, again, it drags matter with it, and it's almost like a snowplow pushing matter ahead of it. And as it pushes matter in, the matter becomes denser and forms a new kind of crystallized matter that then becomes the, the next celestial sphere. And this process continues on creating the, the celestial spheres, and at the end, Robert Gross' test, end of the document, asserts that this process will Dual, and that there won't be enough light to finally fully crystallize the matter at the center. And what's left is the Earth. The Aristotelian way of describing the Earth is in terms of Earth, air, fire, and water. It's these sort of mixed elements that are only partially separated. So the fascinating thing that we've been doing is to take the description in the text and try to turn it into mathematics. And so we have tried to to understand what's written in the text and write it down in modern mathematics, and then to solve the mathematical equations. And it turns out that when you do this, what happens in the mathematics is very much what Robert Gross' test describes, that the mathematics that we've written down describes the production of these shells moving slowly, moving in, creating successive shells towards the Earth. So it's really fascinating that, that it's not just a story that's described in this document. It actually makes mathematical sense. Yeah. We don't really understand whether Robert Grostes was in some way able to just see what would happen with intuition or had some mathematical technique, perhaps geometry, that allowed him to understand this. And we've lost the geometric diagrams because those wouldn't have been written down in, in these documents. So, um, so, so this is all very fascinating. But it, the, the final twist to this is we initially found we couldn't create the Earth. So our cosmos would continue producing perfect celestial spheres all the way into the center Whereas Robert Gross test asserts that this process will stop and leave you with the Earth. Yeah. Um, but then we looked again at the uh, the text and we saw that he often talks about the celestial spheres, the inner ones not being completely perfect. And when we added 
uh, a sort of opacity to the inner spheres. They dim the light from the outer parts, and you actually get the effect that he describes. Uh, the process stops leaving you with some of the matter concentrated and not completely separated. Okay. So it's fascinating that this document makes complete sense, yeah. and that the logical processes describing this universe were very much would be recognized by a modern cosmologist. Yeah. So, you know, my, I put up the, the contentious slide in my talk that Robert Grosstest was the first cosmologist. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I find this really fascinating that things were so well understood by him. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, to put this into context, this is sort of 13th century cosmology. This is before the invention of calculus, before the printing press, if anything. So it's... Um, I find it um, really interesting. So, I mean, presumably either Grosset had a really good intuition for the mass or he had some sort of trick that he that he had, that, some calculations that he made that he didn't basically make public or anything at the time because it seems like it's some quite advanced mathematics. But that was, uh, that was a really, really fascinating thing. And so if I'm, if I'm correct, you're, you're going to apply this sort of scientific analysis to more of his texts? Um, this is all part of the Ordered Universe project, so you can go and look it up on the web yeah. like that. And uh, we already have uh, a book published on colors that, uh, where we've looked at the, his description of how colors work. And what's fascinating there is he describes colors as being a three-dimensional space. And he dis describes how you can you have more or less of each of those dimensions gives you the colors that that you that we observe. And the fascinating thing is one of the texts described how you make bright colors by taking away various combinations of the three things. But if you start from darkness, the text only described making the colors by adding two things, which of course doesn't work. Sure. But then the people involved in this went back to one of the original oldest manuscripts in a library in Spain and discovered that actually the oldest manuscript described adding the three things, the correct answers. And all the errors were just an in, were a scribal error in the copying. And the, you know, it was really um, eye-opening to discover that, that Robert Grostest understood this better than the scribes had been able to copy this across. Yeah. I mean, and I guess at the time this was been quite a common problem, that, mm. that some complicated document would not be copied quite correctly. Yeah. Um, so it's fascinating. Currently we're working on rainbows, okay. and this... Uh, Again, we have to not judge whether the scientific explanation is correct or not in the modern sense. But what we're trying to understand is what was Robert Grosstest thinking and how does his logical argument follow in these, in these documents. Mm -hmm. And again, it's fascinating that he's a top-rate physicist. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely one of the most uh, interesting intersections of, of uh, art and science that, uh, that I've come across, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy that. Thanks a lot, Richard, for talking to us. Well, thank you very much. I'm here at NAM 2014 with Ali Suleiman, who's a PhD student at Imperial College London. Hi, Ali. Hello. And he's been attending the session on uh, planetary magnetospheres. So, um, Ali, could you just briefly outline what you're doing for your PhD? So, I'm currently in my second year of my PhD, and I'm working on 
data from Cassini's magnetometer, which is the only spacecraft presently orbiting Saturn, and the magnetometer is the instrument that measures the planet's magnetic field. And I'm collecting this data and uh, creating a statistical study on Saturn's bow shock, which is the boundary upstream of the planet. And the bow shock is created because the planet's magnetic field presents itself as an obstacle to the incoming supersonic solar wind. This flow needs enough time to slow down and deflect around the planet, and this is achieved via a shock when it is abruptly slowed down and heated. Now, Saturn's bow shock, my work involves emphasizing its physical versatility, so to speak. So because, because Saturn's placed very, very far away from the Sun, it is essentially in a different parameter regime to other planets like Mercury or the Earth. So the plasma conditions over there are different, and therefore the way plasma behaves and interacts is also different. So this is essentially understanding the nature of collisionless shocks in plasma at that regime. And also because the conditions are so variable, we can also see how it behaves at different parameter space within an exotic parameter space itself. Okay, and what uh, what kind of measurements of the magnetic field were there before Cassini came along? Is this like kind of a relatively new study? Yes, it is, um, because Cassini is the only spacecraft to be in orbit of Saturn. Our previous spacecraft uh, were Voyager and Pioneer, and there were some remote observations by the Ulysses spacecraft, but they only had flybys of the planet, so only a handful of crossings of the bow shock. Whereas here, I'm looking at orbits um, spanning from 2004 up until today, so we're looking at hundreds and hundreds of crossings, and that allows us to build a statistical survey of the bow shock and actually characterize its nature. You're just interested in the bow shock, but presumably other people are sort of also looking at the magnetic field itself of the planet, and uh, is there anything interesting or special about Saturn's magnetic field as opposed to Earth's? Like, how do they differ? Yeah, okay, so Saturn's magnetosphere, uh, this is probably the biggest question that the community is facing right now, and this is what we hope to solve uh, by the end of the mission. It's the periodicity of Saturn. So the community is trying to work out how long a day is at Saturn, and this has been shown to change uh, along the years. And not only that, it's we see a differential rotation between the northern and southern hemisphere. So unlike Earth, where it's rigid and it's nicely 24 hours at Saturn, if we're in the northern hemisphere, we see uh, 10.6 hours. If we're in the southern hemisphere, we see 10.8 hours. If we're somewhere in between, we see a combination of both. And this also has a temporal variation. So we're hoping that towards the end of the mission in 2017, we will get near planetary orbit and eventually end the mission deep inside Saturn's atmosphere so we can actually get a, we can get a handle of its, its internal magnetic field and be able to finally come up with what the answer is. Wow, so you're actually going to, to push the, the spacecraft almost all the way into Saturn. You're going to crash it into Saturn at the end of it. Pretty much. <laughs> and um, well, finally, will, will that help you 
study or, or understand magnetic fields around other planets, or do you think, say, other missions will, will be focusing on different planets? So because every every magnetosphere is different. Yeah, I mean, uh, we so far we've seen our solar system. That's what makes Saturn uh, unique, is it's that periodicity. And now because we have this growing studies of exoplanets and we are beginning to observe them remotely studying planets like Saturn uh, actually gives us a feel of what it is like looking at those planets and we would expect that if we if we remotely characterize the atmospheric composition of such planets we would expect that they probably have similar magnetic behavior and by studying Saturn it's the only way whether it's magnetic field or it's uh, bow shock uh, nature or it's um, tail conditions or it's boundary layer conditions, this is pretty much the only in-situ data we can get and use to describe um, other planets, which we can only observe remotely. Understand what's in your back garden before trying to look at other places. Um, that's great. Well, thanks a lot for talking to us, Hadi. Oh, pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. I'm with Professor Bob Nichol, the chair of the Local Organising Committee at NAM 2014. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you doing? Really good, thanks. Uh, so it's the final day of, of NAM. Um, what are your overall impressions, first of all? It's tiring, uh, <laughs> but it's been fantastic. So we did it because we wanted to sort of show Portsmouth, uh, show our fellow astronomers that there was a group here in Portsmouth and we were doing interesting science. So I think we've achieved that. I think people have come here. They've had a good time. They've been impressed by the city. I think uh, you know they, they, they've left with a sense that it really is a great waterfront city. Uh, I think they've been impressed by the venue here at Guildhall, that uh, wonderful Victorian architecture. And I think they've been impressed by our organization of the meeting. But maybe you should ask other people that. But my sense is, is overall, people seem pretty happy. It's been a great conference, and Portsmouth is, is really lovely. The weather's cooperated as well, which has been quite nice. Um, so what were maybe the, the, a couple of highlights of the, of the, of the meeting for you? So for me, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to see as many talks as I wanted to. But I, uh, I thought Rob Fender's uh, talk about extreme astrophysics was fantastic and these fast radio bursts that are now being found in the radio, the Lorimer object and then more that were found last year. I think that's just an absolutely fascinating area. And the fact that you know, he was talking about the SKA, you know, not finding handfuls of these things, but thousands and tens of thousands of these things is just just that quantum leap in in our understanding of these objects will be absolutely fantastic. So I really enjoyed his talk. Uh, I'm a bit biased in the sense I did go uh, uh, to uh, quite a few of the sessions on cosmology and especially uh, the one on the dark energy survey, which I'm involved in. And I thought that was pretty exciting. I've been involved in that survey since 2006 now, and we're coming to the end of its first year. And it's just sort of shocking to see the progress we've made you know in in only six years we've gone from sort of planning things to pictures and wonderful results so so those were the highlights for me yeah it's definitely been a conference that's been turned a lot towards the future there are so many really exciting instruments that are in the coming online or really in in the early stages of planning but that are really going to revolutionize astronomy so yeah you said the dark energy survey the SKA as well so how, how do you think UK astronomy is, is contributing to that? Because obviously it's, it's very much a worldwide effort, but uh, I think we've seen here at the conference that there's a big UK participation. 
Yeah, we, um, we like to tell our colleagues and our funding agencies, of course, we like to tell them that we're second in the world in most metrics that, uh, that people use, and, and I think you see that here. Um, we are clearly working on the world stage, and we're making very big contributions to that. I mean, SKA is a great example of that with taking leadership with STFC uh, and the UK government being the first to really commit to that experiment, and that's fantastic. I think... We need to continue. I mean, the problem is, is that you're running to stand still. And uh, I was very, very happy to see at the uh, STFC and RAS town meeting uh, where there was a discussion now of the new investments that the government is bringing. And there was actually some excitement for once about there could be money available to invest in new opportunities and new things. So as someone who's been around astronomy for quite a while, and I've seen these dips and these peaks in the sort of funding. I think we're coming out of the dip and we might be going into a peak. So I think it is quite a positive time for UK science in general with the, the government starting to see what we do and appreciate what we do and then uh, maybe put uh, the funding that way. But uh, as long as we get the right sort of government, the next general election. That's, a, that's really good news to hear. Um, on a final lighter note, there's been uh, the impact of social media, especially at conferences, is, uh, is bigger and bigger. So um, uh, there was an official uh, NAM 2014 Twitter account and um, there were several other uh, Twitter accounts. So do you think, do you think that's a, a good thing to have at conferences? I do. I, I, so I'm new to Twitter, but I, I, I do tweet. Uh, not very well, but I, I do do it. I think it adds a, a certain sort of buzz to the place. And, and that, you know, what's kind of funny is that I think I find it a very interesting way to sort of start conversations. You can walk up to someone and say, oh, I saw your tweet. And then, and then you go into, as long as it's not an insulting tweet, but as long as it's a nice one, you know, you can go up and say, oh, I saw your tweet. And even if someone's tweeted something about a, a talk that you've been in, so say you, you, know, you see someone's tweet about the, a, a talk you've been watching, it may be a slightly different emphasis or a slightly different point that you hadn't recognized. And then again, you can sort of start a conversation with the people uh, about that. So we did want to use social media quite a lot here. It's been pretty important for us to get the message out about NAM, about what we're doing. Also show what's going on behind the background. You know, we, we tweeted quite a lot before the meeting about, you know, all the delegate bags that we were making up and things like that, just so people could see sort of what is required to sort of run a meeting of this scale. So, yeah, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a good way to uh, engage with the younger people. I, I, I'm, I'm getting on a bit. I'm on, the wrong side of, I'm on the wrong side of 40. So, you know, I'm, uh, it's great to have that connection with the students so you can, uh, you can talk to them about something in common. Definitely. No, it's been, it's been really great. Well, thanks a lot for talking to us, uh, Bob, for taking time out of your hectic schedule. But I guess it's the last day, so hopefully you'll be able to have a bit of a rest soon. <laughs> it's all over. Nearly, nearly, nearly. Only a few more hours to go. Thank you.